Benjamin Beard, welcome back to Kicking the Seat. Uh, I thought it was like two years ago since last we spoke, aside from our appearance on Horror 101 with Dr. AC recently. But no, it turns out it was February. That's the kind of year that 2023 has been. We talked about Gone with the Wind all these many months ago. And now we're here to talk about your latest book. Um, you, we talked uh, a little while ago, a couple, a few years ago now, about uh, The South Never Plays Itself. Uh, very interesting read that we discussed on the podcast, which actually prompted me to want to see Gone with the Wind and, and you know, led to that discussion for which I'm forever grateful. But now we're going to talk about your latest book, The Bad Class. Class of 1984, Bad Boys, The Outsiders, Repo Man, and other gems of 80s trash cinema. Now, we're also going to talk about one of the movies discussed in the book, uh, which is Bad Boys. How can you call that trash cinema, sir? I, I don't know. That, that, that is a damn masterpiece, which I saw for the first time between yesterday and this morning in preparation for this show. And it's one of those, how the hell have I never watched this movie movies? But before we get to all of that, how you doing? I'm fine, Ian. Thanks for having me. Uh, I don't think it's, I don't think it's trash cinema in the sense that it's. I do think it's grindhouse and nasty. I think it's a masterpiece too. I think it's one of the best films of the 1980s, and I don't know why more people don't know about it. I, I think people have a vague, like movie people have a sense of it being out there because of Sean Penn, but I think it's superb. So, but. The title is supposed to be kind of catchy, you know. Oh, sure. Well, you know, I was thinking about that very thing as far as why don't more people know about it? I think some of the answers are in your book. Um, you know, Reagan, as he was in the 1980s, sort of a central figure and, and recurring boogeyman in, in the bad class. And that we think about 1980s movies, as you point out in the movie uh, or in the book, as being, you know, kind of teen centric, um, very optimistic, even the the kind of the edgier John Hughes, like uh, The Breakfast Club has its, you know, juvenile delinquent kind of, you know, overtones. But still, the guy gets the girl in the end. Everyone kind of walks off happy and they're all friends across these very diverse cliques. Right. Um, but when you t well, when you look at the at the 80s, there is that kind of a dark shadow, which I think Bad Boys represents. And it's not just like the flip side, like, oh, things don't always work out for the best. It's really, really dark and gruesome and heavy in dealing with a class, uh, you know, several, I guess, classes and strata of people that aren't even mentioned in most of those you know, kind of like glossy John Hughes types of movies. Um, so I guess we can start there. How did you discover bad boys and what compelled you to include that and the other three titles in the book what was it thematically that drew you to write about these in a book of sort of reviews slash essays that incorporate insights into your life and how these movies kind of affected your outlook on the world so um i started with class of 1984 because one of my earliest memories um is michael j fox getting like stabbed right in the gut in a high school cafeteria. And I must've been, uh, it was on TV, I must've been seven or eight. And uh, I was convinced for years that that's what high school was like, right? Like people are gonna like jam cocaine up your nose in the bathrooms and knife wielding hoodlums are gonna stab you if you get out of line. Uh, and it was Michael J. Fox, who I knew from all the other sort of great 1980s movies he made. He's, he's much younger here. So, um, I started with class of 1984 and during COVID um, 
like everybody, I was, uh, I felt rudderless and I rewatched it. And I was like, oh man, this movie's even better than, I've always loved that movie, but I was like, this movie's even better than I remember. So I was taking notes and then I was, I was starting to say, wait a minute, I might have like a book here. Um, and it was just going to be about class of 1984. But then, uh, I rewatched bad boys, which I've owned forever. And I watched bad boys as a kid on, uh, either WGN or TBS, it was on TV a bunch when I, it might've been USA when I was like 11 and 12, it was on TV a bunch. Was it, yeah. was it 15 minutes long? Like I can't remember, <laughs> I can't imagine what a TBS cut of bad boys would look like. Well, the, I mean, I don't remember what was cut out, but the bulk of the film was there. Uh, and there's, uh, so then I was like, well, I started taking notes on bad boys. And then I was like, wait a minute, Bad Boys came out one year after class of 1984, right? So then all of a sudden I was like, wait, they're both about juvenile delinquents. They're both about the failures of schools in some sense. And then uh, I said, okay, well, let me look and see what came out the next year. And then The Outsiders came out the next year, which is a really important movie in my childhood, right? And I'm like, well, The Outsiders is also kind of about juvenile. So I was like, what the hell is going on here, right? Like, and then, uh, I was like just casting my memory out back and I was like, what movie was on TV that I saw a lot when I was a kid about the same time? And it was Repo Man, which is both of a piece of these other movies and very different. Um, but it still is about ennui and the kind of social failures. Uh, it's stranger than the other three. I mean, in ways good and bad, it's much stranger. But so that's... Uh, yeah, that's sort of how I cobble them together. And Ian, I don't uh, interrogate myself when I'm writing. I don't like, I don't, I try not to second guess myself. I know this book is kind of strange, but I, I was like, well, it's just, this is what I've got. I've got these four movies and I've got this friendship that went awry and I've got the, the kind of early to mid eighties and I've got Reagan and I've got my own kind of political shift and this is like this is the book I'm I'm gonna write, and it, and that definitely I guess comes across. I was just I was curious about these four movies and and seeing these kind of come through, you know, come back onto your radar and, and rediscovering them. I mean, it's crazy that your first kind of real encounter with Michael J. Fox was in a movie in which he gets uh, shivved. I think my first experience was either it was either Family Ties. Midnight Madness or High School USA, which was another TV movie, all vastly different from, <laughs> no, from 1984. I knew him from Family Talks. That's when I saw the movie, I knew him or I knew who he was. I don't really. This is this is a very early memory. I think I was eight or seven. So this is like casting back. In fact, The South Never Plays Itself starts in there saying like I like seeded this book in that book saying like an early memory was seeing Michael J. Fox stabbed so he's yeah uh it's it is shocking and what's really fascinating about it this is nothing to do with the book but he is not the most interesting thing in the movie he's not the best young actor in the movie in fact he's pretty forgettable and kind of mediocre i think he's a great actor by the way but watching the movie it's like wait a minute he's the guy who like came out of it as the big star it's weird um 
Yeah, and full disclosure, I think the only I've seen two of the movies that you discuss in the film and the book now. I keep calling it a movie, <laughs> but it's a book. Um, I think part of it is because so much of it reads, you know, your descriptions of these uh, of these films really brought me into the world of these movies you're describing, even though two of them I hadn't seen. It's a crime against humanity. I've not seen Repo Man, although I'm I'm told I'm you know I I gotta turn in my critics card essentially if I haven't seen it because it's such a cult classic. But it turns forty next year, so maybe we'll talk about it. I would <laughs> love that. Yeah, you can you can be my guide. Um, and I haven't seen Class of 1984. I'd seen The Outsiders. I think like you, that was sort of a staple of my early childhood. That was. It didn't give me so much a picture of what high school is like, but just kind of like what older teenagers were like when I was, you know, not a teenager yet. I'm like, oh, that's kind of that's kind of cool and dangerous, except for what happens to Matt Dillon coming out of that liquor store or the convenience store. Um, but uh, at, but with Bad Boys, again, I just seen this for the first time and it was your, I think, rich description of it that really sold me on. OK, I want to pair this book discussion with a movie and just the way you described what was going on with Chicago, you know, that, that's kind of a connection here, of course, but also with this weird tension of Sean Penn and Isai Morales gradually working their way from an inciting incident, looping back around through the kind of the criminal justice juvenile detention system uh, and coming to a head as they're both in prison in the same facility. It's gripping stuff. And you've got the the Horowitz character who is Penn's, you know, like 12 year old cellmate. But as you point out, he's the most dangerous psychopathic person in the entire film and it turned out to be true even though i had read your kind of rich spoilery descriptions of what happened it still didn't prepare me for actually watching the movie which is so harrowing and again i don't know why i'd never seen this movie before and i understand why it, people might not gravitate toward it because it's very hard to watch but i feel like it should be still discussed much more than it is i I don't even know if it was critically acclaimed or even noticed when it came out. I don't think so. I think it got lost um, when it came out. Uh, but so I'll just say to people who are listening, the film starts with Sean Penn, who's a, a, a hoodlum in a public uh, on the north side of Chicago. Um, he's at a public school. He goes to the same school as a, another hoodlum played by S.I. Morales. And they don't really like each other, but they don't they don't have like a big thing, but one of Sean Penn's friends overhears a, um, it's Cameron from Paris Bill's Day. Here's yeah, a, a young, a, a young Alan Ruck who still looks like he's about 25 <laughs> playing know, 16. <laughs> I know, but it's, it's weird seeing him in this kind of hard, uh, noirish movie, this really tough movie. It's weird seeing him, but they overhear of, uh, there's going to be a kind of rip off. So they decide to rip off the rip off in the melee i won't spoil anything but sean penn well i will spoil one thing sean penn kills si morales's brother and then goes is sent to a juvenile detention center based on the one of the notorious chicago uh detention centers and so he's there and the movie shifts to like he's in the detention center trying to figure out how to like be and all of a sudden he's a nobody and there are these two kind of tough guys who run the detention center so you have that storyline and then meanwhile si morales has decided he's going to get revenge on sean penn's girlfriend played by ali sheedy so that's the like 
that's the kind of setup of the movie. And Sean Penn's roommate is a guy named Horowitz, as you mentioned, who is a, uh, he's brilliant and very funny and he's kind of warm to Sean Penn, but he's also, um, he's really scary. He's really scary as you watch the movie because he doesn't really care about other people. And uh, it's, it's fascinating. And the movie's not really about him, but there's like a movie inside the movie where he's the main character, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it reminds me of, I can't remember the character's name, uh, but you've seen near dark, right? The, the vampire yeah. film from me. Yeah. 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 The, the, there's the little kid vampire who's like 11, 12 years old on the outside, but he's actually probably like a hundred or something on the inside. And he kind of wears that frustration of like being in between these two worlds. I got that same kind of vibe from Horowitz. He's an old, twisted, messed up soul, but he actually happens to reside in, you know, a 12-year-old's body. And I wonder, you know, what his backstory is. That's one of the fascinating things about this. I mean, we get kind of a story of what's going on with Sean Penn and Isaiah Morales, but there isn't there aren't any like long drawn out speeches of messed up childhoods or anything from the other inmates. We get to we yeah, we get to meet a lot of them, but we have to kind of figure out or ask ourselves how did they end up here and how much of that is due to you know family life versus like early encounters with a system that just kind of like kept passing them through uh, a meat grinder and wearing them down um just yeah a lot of fascinating questions in that movie um what was your i guess reaction to it Uh, well you've seen I, i imagine a few times over the years has your reaction to it changed since the first time you saw it, I mean, obviously you saw, you saw it younger, so you might not even be able to grapple no, I remember. with I remember. the ideas. Okay, well, let's okay, talk about so, the evolution of, of that right. in your head. And I, I have, uh, I've always, this is a, a, an aside, but I always thought I would write a book, a short book on um, my evolution on Marathon Man, because I've seen this movie dozens of times, and every time I watch it, one time I think it's brilliant and I love it. And then the next time I watch it, I'm like, this movie doesn't make any sense. It's <laughs> kind of bad. And then I watch it again because I'm brought back to it. And I'm like, this movie's stunning, right? So Bad Boys, I watched it the first time. Um, I'm, I remember now, it was on USA. I think I was 12. And I would sneak around and watch these kind of gr- uh, nasty movies because my mom didn't want me to do that. Uh, and my dad didn't really care, but I, I didn't want to have to justify it to him. Like he loves movies, but I still would have to be like, oh, I'm watching this for this reason, right? So the first scene, there's a guy in the city. I grew up in Pensacola, Florida. So this, the city already was terrifying to me. There's a guy, uh, a woman in the city, and uh, she's supposed to be from the suburbs. And this hoodlum steals her purse. And then a, and another guy, an adult sees it and chases the guy who into an alley and it's Sean Penn and he cracks him right in the face or in the head with a metal pole or something or a cudgel. And I was like, this is the first scene of the movie. Right. And I was like, you know, I, I was shocked. I was shocked. The movie just got right to it. And it was so tough and so gross. Right. And well, the movie's really well filmed. That's the, that's the thing. Right. That's why yeah, Rick not... Rosenthal, who did Halloween three of all, all yeah. The films. Yeah. Right. Which I, uh, or Halloween two, I don't remember. He did one of the Halloween two and Halloween three are both really well filmed. Besides that, Rosenthal didn't really do much. I mean, he made a lot of films, but they're not, uh, but 
he's got a real lean style. Um, but so I saw it and then uh, I watched most of the movie that night. I got really disturbed by it. I've always actually been, as much as I love movies, they disturb me. So I don't think I finished the movie or I might've changed the channel and come back to it. And then I watched, no one at school had heard about this movie. And I had one friend, he was more into music than movies, but he also was like a, like a, he knew a lot about a lot. Right. And I said, Hey, do you seen the Sean Penn movie? That was, he, he hadn't heard. Of it. Uh, so I watched it again a couple of years later on TV again. And this time I was like 15 or something or 16. And I was, uh, I was blown away. I was like, this movie is so good. It just like pulls you right in. Right. And so I bought it on DVD when everyone was buying DVDs in the early 2000s. And I watched it, I watched it again. And I was like, this movie just holds up, right? Uh, and I've since maybe watched it three or four times. And each time I get sucked into it, maybe five, I may have watched it 10 times totally. Each time I watch it, I get pulled into the plot. Each time I'm stunned by the performances and, uh, and the visual, there's two or three like top shelf scenes right like at least yeah yeah and there's one in particular we'll get to that is unforgettable and anyone who sees the movie it's the scene you there's two scenes you're going to remember even if you know but so uh i have always thought it was great unlike you know some movies you come back to and you're like oh whoa right what did i you know or some movies like back to the future actually get richer and you realize oh this is this movie is is brilliantly conceived and like put together right like that this move but this movie i thought was great the first time i saw it even though it disturbed me still think it's great and uh i yeah there's no i mean it's a boring answer i guess but i i i love it i again i think it's one of the best films of the 80s and i don't say that with hyperbole no and i'm i'm there with you even the i'm fresh off seeing it as of like you know 10 hours ago or something but <laughs> um I, I gotta ask like because you saw it uh you know, one or two times on TBS, you know, edited for television when you, maybe it was the, when you bought it on DVD or something, was that the first time that you'd seen the full like R rated cut and did any of that extra stuff that, you know, not safe for TV, did that increase the impact that it changed the way you perceived the film? Or is it just like, Oh, this is kind of what I expected. Well, I, I don't know if my memory is going, cause the book is partially about my memory too, but I don't know if my memory is like filling in my, my first viewing with the details, but I remember the fight scenes being very similar and uh, TBS in particular had a loose editing style. Like they would just like blank out the word. They wouldn't fill it. Some other channels would fill it with other words, which was hilarious. You know, they're like, oh, yeah. you mother salesman, you know, they'd say stupid stuff like that, but uh, <laughs> uh, not TBS would just go, you mother, right? And you knew what they were saying, so it didn't matter. And in the 80s, anyway, violence, unless someone got like decapitated, violence just wasn't, you, they would kind of show it. Like it's a predator on TV. I mean, you know, it's basically the same movie. I think. Uh, Carl Weathers' arm gets ripped off or something, and they just show his arm getting ripped off when I was a kid. Um, so doesn't it get ripped off? Does it get like yanked off? Am I wrong? But whatever. I thought it got. I thought it got blasted. I off. Off. I haven't seen Predator oh, yeah. in a while. Yeah, I, it's, so, it's been a while. Right. Well, anyway, that's enough. Pre that's enough Predator for tonight. Uh, I uh, yeah. So my my our memories of movies are as slippery as our memories of our real lives. 
right? And so they get really tricky. And um, I uh, I saw this movie Salvador, uh, which is a, a a pretty good movie with James Woods, eighties uh, eighties mm-hmm. film. Uh, have you seen it? No, but I, I'm familiar with it. So in it, uh, he goes down to El Salvador. He's a based on a real guy. He's a photographer, and he hangs out with Belushi, um, not the famous one. Uh, uh, what's the not the one in Saturday Live? I always conf- confuse Jim, Jim Belushi. Jim John Belushi. was John was on. Yeah, SNL so Jim Belushi Jimmy. is in yeah. the movie, and in my memories, and this really messed me up as a kid. On TV, there's a bar fight in El Salvador, and Belushi gets like his throat slashed. But I rewatched the movie 15 years later, and it does not happen in the movie. There's a bar <laughs> fight. Jim Belushi does not get his throat slashed, right? And, and I was convinced. In fact, I was so disturbed by this change. I was like, well, I don't understand, right? I've had it wrong. So anyway, uh, in these, if you don't rewatch these films, they, they, they have a tricky, they have a, there can be, uh, we get them wrong, right? And uh, in this case, I rewatched the movies. I did not, re- interestingly, because I did not rewatch The Outsiders. A, I've seen it 50 times. And B, that movie was the one that backed into what the book is really about, which is about a friendship that like, I was sort of ghosted at a young age. And I still don't know what it was about. And so, uh, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Um, actually, I want to talk about that that relationship a bit because that's sort of not a centerpiece, but it is a it casts a, a shadow over I think the entire book. Your relationship with uh, your friend Britt, who you were you friends since childhood or just high school, or it, it seems like a really long lasting relationship. Uh, we were friends until since uh, uh, second grade. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, that's probably like what about ten years then? Ten, eleven um, years, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, essentially, you know, not to give everything away, but I mean, there was, it it wasn't even really a falling out. It was, as you mentioned, kind of a a ghosting back before ghosting was really a thing. Um, Yeah. And it seems like you, you know, it seems safe to say, at least by the end of the book, which is very contemporary, that you still haven't been able to to process that. I mean, yes. So I, uh, I don't want to be the kind of person that uh, holds grudges and wishes people ill and, and, and has dark fantasies about people suffering who <laughs> wronged me. But I am sometimes that kind of person. I come from a long line of like Scottish, ill-tempered, brooding <laughs> hill people. And so uh, my, uh, in this case, honestly, it's less about forgiveness uh, or, or anger and more about uh, enigma and, 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 confu- and bewilderment and a kind of uh, question mark that hangs over a very important relationship in my life. And I felt for at some times I thought I deserved it. I had done something or that I wasn't cool enough. You know, I internalized it. And then sometimes I felt uh, that he was, um, he, I had him wrong, you know, that he, in the book, I, I hopefully, I sort of artfully, you know, go, I dip in and out of it 
and mm-hmm. it unfolds in the book. And now I'm just sort of blathering, but uh, I, I worked pretty hard to have it kind of be a story, but uh, there is no answer. And he, if he remembers who I am, which I, I'm sure he does, but if he remembers who I am, he either has a very different, he obviously has a different story because no one wakes up to be the villain, right? No one's like, I'm going to be the villain today. I'm going to like hurt someone today. Uh, or um, his version would be, oh, we just kind of drifted apart. So, but I have not forgiven him in a, any meaningful way. No, Ian, I have not. <laughs> it's it's weird because as I've mentioned, I think in a couple of our other previous conversations, you and I were about the same age. We have a lot of the same interests down to like horror movies, comic books, you know, yeah. being raised on movies, having all like kind of a, a strange pseudo religious background. Yeah. Um, and I also have a friend whose name started with a B <laughs> that ghosted me in high school. Are you serious? <laughs> yes, yeah, I'm you reading serious? this. Yes, I'm reading this story and I'm imagining, I'm remembering the last time I saw this person. Um, you know, I'd, I'd gone over to, this is a digression, but I'd gone over to, you know, visit him one afternoon and he was like playing guitar up on the balcony of his apartment. And it was like, you know, yeah, I'll see you around. And then I went back like a week or two later because we'd gone to different high schools. And uh, yeah, his house was empty or his apartment. Uh, I knocked on his neighbor's door and they're like, oh yeah, they moved. I'm like, they moved? We'd been best friends for, I don't know, half a decade at that point. Um, years later, we caught up and became Facebook friends and social media. Um, and I think we had one or two like passing kind of, you know, remarks or something. But I too, I think what it was, and I'm not trying to tell you how to live your life, but it just, <laughs> but it just like watching the story of you and Brit uh, unfold reminded me of what happened. And I think it was, I was finally given the chance to ask the question. And at that point I didn't because I felt like, what the hell difference does it make? You know, we were 15, 16, it hurt a lot. And I think in a lot of ways it kind of resonated and I still probably care around some of those scars where they're buried deep under like, you know, other decades of other scars that kind of built on top of it. Sure. Um, So I can, I can understand the hurt, but I also wonder, you know, do you think that you will not necessarily ask for forgiveness, which is also a kind of a strange thing to expect from, you know, a 17 year old kid because they are by nature (laughs) full of poor judgment. But do you get the sense that you might be able to get some kind of closure? Is that so important to you? I'll never get closure. We don't have any method of communicating uh, and we never will. uh, And that's okay. I'll never see him again. Um, I wrote the book in part to, to process. I mean, I primarily try to understand the world through my like writing self. Well, that's not true. I primarily um, digest and sublimate my feelings about the world through writing. So, and then I share them uh, to be part of the, you know, human connection. I mean, I don't do it for money or, or, you know, fame or i mean i'm not chasing anything i'm just trying you know i want to i want to share because this is part of my life and and in this case i think a lot of people have gone through stuff like this and i think it's really hard to stop being friends with someone who you don't want to be friends with right so i on the one hand i would understand this case is in, in our case it was tricky because 
we went to different high schools. He didn't have any friends. And he came into my friend group from my new friend group at my high school. And I like was happy to bring him along. So mm-hmm. like I, his, all of his friends, except with one or two exceptions were my friends. And then he switched to a third high school, made some new friends. I knew all of those dudes too. Pensacola's not that big, but like, it just started to, I don't know. I don't know. So, uh, I mean, I think most likely I was, I was not outwardly strange as a person in high school, but I was kind of a strange, uh, kid, uh, and kind of a strange adult, I think. So <laughs> I think, I think like, I think I feel very vulnerable right now, but anyway, I think that okay. part of the, no, I just think that part of the thing was that I just, he was kind of cool all of a sudden. And I wasn't to go to like to a John Hughes kind of world. And um, I think that that is part of it. It just played out in such a strange way. Um, yeah. And the book, if you read people, if hopefully a few people will buy it or get it from listen podcasts, because there is there is like a, a, a very uh, haunting thing that happened between us. Weird, right? Uh, not as weird as your best friend like moving and not telling you that is that's <laughs> that's next level. Yeah. Uh, all right. So let, let's circle back to, to bad boys because. All right. So in in the Sean Penn goes to the juvenile detention center. And his roommate is Horowitz. And these two guys, Viking and Gene, run the place. The adults tweet, Tweety, right? Tweety, sorry, Tweety. Yeah, yeah. The the adults let them run the place. Okay. And they um, assault sexually assault the other kids. They give them junkie jobs. They're the biggest bullies in the world. Um, one of them play, I forget the guy's act, the actor's name is not slipping my mind, but he's the bad guy in Highlander. So he plays oh, Clancy Brown. Yeah, Clancy Brown. Sorry. He plays the bad yeah. guy in lots of stuff. He's amazing. But so the other guy was like in like two movies. But so they they are running the place. And Sean Penn is slowly working his way up in um in power inside the the prison, the juvenile detention center. And so they're gonna you don't even remember SI Morales at this point, right? It's just, it's Tweedy and Viking headed for Sean Penn. You're like, how, what's he going to, what's going to, what could he possibly do? These guys are stronger than he is. They're bigger. So the best scene in the movie, the best scene in the movie, it comes to a head. They're going to come down and they're going to beat the shit out of him. Okay. And Horowitz is basically like, what are you going to do? Sean Penn's like, don't worry about it. So (laughs) they're upstairs and it's filmed beautifully. And it like films like through the room and Sean Penn's in his little room and you can kind of see them starting to head his way. So he takes his pillow out of his pillowcase and he has it like kind of hidden by his side. And he goes to the Coke machine as these two guys are coming down. It's it's RC Cola, sir. Sorry. That's <laughs> props to the Royal, Royal Crown Cola Company. I love that. <laughs> so he, he puts in, he gets a couple of sodas and, and not everyone is watching. Right. Everyone's watching what's happening and he puts them into the, the pillowcase and like kind of ties them in a knot and no one can really see what he's doing. And then Clancy Brown comes up and taps him on the shoulder and he says, hey, asshole. And then Sean Penn turns around, wham, and hits him right in the nose, breaks his nose, beats them both to pieces, just beats them up so badly with these Coke cans and this uh, pillowcase. It's such a savage scene. And 
it's yes. the, the the thing the the icon of that scene that stuck out to me was the bloody pillowcase. Yeah, you see it. It's 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 so so red by the end that it almost feels as if it's bleeding from the inside. But you realize, oh, that's that's all the blood from the people that are now down on the ground, having their knees busted, their faces smashed up. And then later we see the aftermath as they're all, you know, kind of messed up. And I like that the film really does you know, take its time to show us the evolution of actual time because yeah. we see them, they're all bandaged up, they're, they're swollen. And then, you know, several scenes later after, you know, after a month has passed, you see, oh, they've just got like a little bit of, you know, scarring some like faint red lines. It's and they stay away from him after this. And let me say, if you, j just because I described the scene to you, anyone listening, please go watch the film. I am not, I'm not deluding or spoiling the scene. It is incredible. I mean, I've seen the movie 10, again, 10, 15 times. Every time I'm like, my heart's racing, you know, and I also, I know what's going to happen, but I like, my mind trips itself because you don't know. Uh, and so, okay, so here's the, the thing. Another film like this would like, let it be, right? Would let it be. He beats these guys up and they're basically gone. But this isn't that kind of movie. And this is what makes it like rich and strange. Two things happen. One, and we won't spoil the end, I guess, but S.I. Morales commits a crime and gets sent to the same juvenile detention center as Sean Penn, right? So that's the first thing that happens. So all of a sudden, there's like another beef. Two, Clancy Brown ends up kind of being a roommate with S.I. Morales. I believe they're roommates, but they like team up, yeah. right? And then three, and this is the part that makes the movie so much better than any kind of other movies like it. Uh, Tweety gets out. He gets out. You don't even see him leave. He just he's gone, right? He gets uh, paroled. No, you, you, you just see him. You see him leave. He he. But I mean, you don't out. like. It's not like a big thing, right? He's gone. Yeah. Yeah. So he leaves, I, and then you learn later he's killed off screen. And Viking Clancy Brown is like devastated by this. And like writes a little poem and then the other prisoner and shares it in this little class that they have and the other prisoners laugh at him and then the teacher says like hey do, you know why you shouldn't be laughing and then all there's this like sobering moment and so you're like pushed through all these different feelings about these characters who you hate i mean they're like terrible people but they care for each other they're uh they're in a system that doesn't give a shit about any of them right and it's it's astonishing. Well, it's what's fascinating is that the system, you know, writ large may not care about them. Uh, they are treated as, you know, almost commodities. I mean, one of the things I think that it's a brilliant touch, whether this was intentional, the part of the screenplay or just, you know, just happenstance. Paco, Isai Morales's character, you know, yes, he ends up in the same juvenile detention center as Sean Penn's O'Brien character. Like, okay, yeah, that's a contrivance. But the reason he ends up there is because there's no other place in any of the other juvenile detention centers, you know, in Illinois, apparently, or the greater metro area. Um, and that speaks to, you know, this idea of like, wow, there's such a problem with, you know, crime and, and juveniles that they're they're packed in so tight that there's no place else to put them until something opens up down the line, almost like waiting for a hotel room, you know, six months later or something. Um, so yeah, that's, it's, it's a, a moment of convenience that is 
you know, accentuated and made to feel real um, that you're right. I think other movies would have handled differently or just like kind of let it go. Of course, it's a movie. Of course, they're going to end up together. No, this felt like an actual you situation. Forget, you forget about that. Like you don't, even though it flips back to Paco or S.I. Morales, like you don't really think the movie's heading in that direction, even though of course it has to be. But the way the movie's kind of set up, it, you almost wonder, is Sean Man going to see him when he gets out? Or like, I don't know. Because the, the, it's all about these other characters that you meet um, once he's in the detention center. And uh, yeah. Well, what I wanted to, to the, what I, before I went off on that tangent, what I wanted to say about the uncaring system is yes, there, there's, but there's different layers to it. There's the system. Right. There is the, I guess, the kind of the superintendent of the prison who we see a couple of times. He's literally like this middle-aged blonde uh, pipe smoking guy yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who's completely out of touch, but he's also kind of a hard ass, or at least he wants to think he is. And right. then there's the, the, the kind of the COs working under him, particularly uh, Herrera, who kind of becomes a major figure pretty much when... Uh, Paco shows up maybe a little bit before then. Um, but he really, they, he and the other corrections officer, I can't remember his name. He's got the, the mustache and like he's from the, fame. He's from the movie and TV show fame. Okay. But they, they seem to care about these kids right. and they want, they're them trying. To get, yeah. They're trying, but they also realize that they're fighting uphill battle. Like there's, there's a semi comedic moment when Sean Penn first shows up at the facility and he's seeing this giant chart of offenses and each one has a point system. If you get those points, it adds to your sentence. And one of them is like, no smoking. Otherwise it's 500 points. He looks around and everybody yeah. in the yard is smoking <laughs> cigarettes <laughs> and there's this underground quote unquote, you know, smokes right. trade. Um, but yeah, it's, and I think that that last climactic scene with the big prison fight um, in which, uh, you know, it's not really a spoiler because, of course, this, this is where the movie's going. But O'Brien and Paco have it out in the in the yard or not the yard, but it's like the central area yeah, of the, the prison. The right. Quad or the. the yeah. Right. And everybody is like clearing out the tables, making room for them to, to have this brawl. Um, and the uh, Herrera has been he's on night watch, but he has been incapacitated in the most brutal, savage way, partly because he's painted as being a three dimensional character that we actually care about. And right. we feel that he wants these kids to succeed. So what happens to him feels especially cruel. And when reinforcements do show up, they can't get in to break up the fight because all this furniture has been shoved up against the doors. Nobody has the keys and yada, yada, yada. So that's what makes it, I guess, even harder to watch. And the final scene of resolution between these two characters, I think, is brilliantly shot because it's 2023. I feel like I've seen this move done a hundred times in movies since yeah. this came out. I don't know if this is the origin of this moment, or this kind of moment. I won't spoil what happens, right. but it feels like the first time that yeah. anyone ever thought to do this. And I'm like, damn it, because either way, until the camera reveals what actually happens, I'm, I'm doing a choose your own adventure thing. Yeah. I'm like, well, if it went this way, oh, my God, this is awful. If it went this way, oh, my God, that's even worse. Yeah. But when we find out the resolution, there's. Again, I don't want to say how I feel because I feel like that'd be a spoiler, but it's the perfect way, I think, to end this this film. You know, yeah. yeah I, I totally, I agree. And I think, like, it's, 
there's no confusion or uh, enigma about how the movie ends. There's no mystery to it, but you, the movie's like earned it's, it's earned its conclusion. And uh, the world building is so strong. You can smell the, the detention center. You can like, you can see all the rooms and stuff. You can feel it, even though you haven't wandered around in there. And uh, so the like physical space. So what you're talking about when they're closing them, when they're like blocking the guards and they're moving all the stuff, uh, it works because the movie's done such a good job of, of mapping out the detention center. Uh, the only movie I can, one of the only movies I can think of that does such a good was like Ratatouille. The kitchen and ratatouille it's like that <laughs> like that's how they you know they kind of capture the space um and i mean i so i i riff a little bit in the book about prison movies and juvenile detention movies and i really like them for this reason i realize it's like a closed society it's a finite space so uh i think filmmakers can can move you in this space and, and it's so limited uh the the tensions are ratcheted up always and it's like it's it's like visiting uh, another world i mean i've never been in prison it's like visiting another world but it seems so familiar and, and i like bad boys i i i don't think i don't know if it's the best prison movie ever made okay I, i'm not really Sure, I can say it. I've seen a lot of prison movies. It's one of the best prison movies ever made. Did you ever watch the show Oz on HBO back in the late I 90s? Did and I had a really bad joke in the book about that show that I took out because I just didn't in a later draft because I didn't I thought it didn't work. But do you want to share it here? <laughs> or is it too bad? To share? <laughs> it's just stupid. It's a pun on, on Oh, I love puns. All right. I said it was paniculus or something like that because there's so much like there's so many penises in the show uh it's stupid i'm i'm very happy i'm very glad i took it out yes i watched the first two seasons of odds one of the lead actors leon is a guy i've always oh, loved yeah uh, five heartbeats he, yeah mm -hmm. i think he's a wonderful actor i don't think he kind of i don't think he quite got the career he should have gotten I don't know him. I mean, you know, I don't know, but he's wonderful. And I was drawn to the show for him. Uh, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I was, will you tell me, what do you, what do you think? Well, well I loved Oz. Um, yeah, I was, I haven't watched it since the late mid to late nineties when it came out. So I have no idea how it holds up. Um, I mean, it's where I first discovered J.K. Simmons, who would go on to be, you know, J. Jonah and Jameson sure. and, you know, he's really all the other stuff. Yeah, he is. Um, and so when he shows up in, in other roles, uh, like not being the, the head of a neo-Nazi prison gang, it's kind right. of surprising. But no, what, what struck me about, so that's to say, I don't know how well it holds up now. Um, but watching Bad Boys, which came out, you know, probably 13 years, 14 years before Oz, it seems almost like a precursor to that because the idea of the Oswald maximum security prison, which you know, short for Oz is that it's sort of a new for the 1990s, uh, way of conducting prisons. They've got like a central, almost guard tower post in the middle of what we yeah. were referring to as like the, the inside concrete yard. You've got all the automatic 
like electronic buzzer doors, you know, security is very tight. Security, I think it's because I'd watched Oz when I'm watching Bad Boys. I'm like, they don't have anything in this prison. It is not no, locked down. And so what happens to Herrera at the end, yeah. again, not to give it away, it's not surprising. But I'm wondering if perhaps people who were designing Oz watched Bad Boys and like, we can't let that happen to our poor well, they, I mean, they rely on uh, Tweety and Viking to, to, I mean, they rely on the prisoners to the, to the kids to police themselves a little yeah. bit and they have to, uh, I believe Oz came out of the panopticon concept, right? Which is that you have, you're always being watched. And mm -hmm. there's been some theorists who said, uh, that's like being alive, you know, in contemporary world, like we're being watched all the time. Right. Yes. Life. In the <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, but Oz, I, Oz has dated okay. I watched it maybe 10 years ago um, and I ran out of steam. It, honestly, it was a little, it was a little, this, our discussion isn't about Oz, but it was a little much being in prison with these guys for like 20 hours. Cause mm. I, I was like watching them in a row. I, I should probably go back to, I was on the third season or something. I was kind of, I don't want to, I just don't want to be in prison anymore, you know? Uh, but uh, yeah, so I think, I think anyone listening, I'm going to circle back to bad boys. It's so, ultimately it is so good. And class of 1984 is so good. Class of 1984 is, is a kind of brutal horror adjacent reworking of Blackboard Jungle, where a teacher goes to a school and runs afoul of some tough, like some street tough guys types at the school and it gets out of hand. But uh, it's, it is so well filmed and clever and mean, and it is trashier, but it's, a, it's, it's very strong, way better than, it, than you would think. Uh, and so, yeah, go ahead, for, sorry. For me, it was, it was honestly a toss up between watching Bad Boys and then Class of, I'm, I'm gonna watch Class of 1984. I, I just didn't have time to watch it for this show. I mean, Bad Boys um, is the better film. I think yeah. as, uh, critically, I mean, if you're approaching it, you know, quali qualitatively, like the quality of Bad Boys is higher. However, Class of 1984 is excellent, but it is a B movie. I mean, it's a drive-in, it, like it's a, you know, but it, it's a, it's superb. And then Repo Man, which you said you haven't seen, let me say, is kind of a love it or hate it movie. It's fully a cult movie. So the tone is all over the place. It's, uh, it has Harry Dean Stanton, so it's already like, you know, you should, people should watch it. But that's, that's one of Roger Ebert's rules. Um, <laughs> do, do you know that one? I didn't know it's, that, but I it's love the it. it's the uh, the Harry Dean Stanton M. Emmett Walsh movie or rule, which is if those two actors appear in a movie, it's automatically at least very good. Well, I agree because I'm I'm watching I'm halfway through Ordinary People, which I've never seen for the first time. And again, nothing to do with what we're talking about, but it's famous for for beating Raging Bull for Best Picture in 1980, right? And I've always avoided it because I'm like, ah, this like metal brow movie, I'm never going to watch it. It's really good. It is, if you haven't seen it, it's it's great. And M. Emmett Walsh is in it. And he's amazing. <laughs> he plays like a swimming coach or something. And I agree, he's brilliant. Just like you did in Back to School. What's going on here? <laughs> but yeah, but... Uh, 
Uh, so anyway, class, so it's a repo man, but let, let me just say, uh, it is, it's very strange because it, it's, it's kind of funny. It's, it's satire, but once you get past the satire of like consumerism of early 1980s, the satire gets very strange and it's not clear what, what is being satirized or what the movie's really about. And in it, there's a car that most likely has like an alien body in the trunk that is evaporating people who look at it. And the driver of the car is like delusional from being from radiation or something. And then Emilio Estevez, who's like a street punk who, whose parents have like given his college money away to a tele, televangelist. He, he's kind of wandering around Los Angeles or a West Coast city and falls in with these repo dudes and starts repossessing cars. And Harry Dean Stanton is like his mentor, right? So it's, uh, it's a wild movie. It's a quintessential 80s movie in terms of its icons and iconography. It's very strange. And the plot breaks down. The plot breaks down. But if you like it, it's unforgettable. unforgettable right? It's unforgettable. And you'll know if you like it pretty quickly. But if you don't like it, you'll be like, what? But it's, it's, it's the opposite of, of bad boys. It's, it's at times silly. It's uh, self-aware. It's uh, in ways good and bad. It's a uh, uh, high concept. Like he goes to the grocery store and the food is like, has cans that just say food. <laughs> and like, he'll go to get a beer and it just says beer. There's like all these white cans of beer, right? Um, and so, yeah, but I end on Repo Man because that that was the fourth movie that came out and it coalesced, like a lot of the ideas of the 80s do coalesce around this movie. And it is one of the great cult films of the 80s with Blue Velvet and Videodrome. I would, I would argue, I mean, who am I? But- oh. I think, there. I think Blue Velvet and Videodrome are better films. They were, but video, but Repo Man was a kind of a hit. It was kind of a hit, like critical and commercial hit. And the three of them are grappling with similar things. Uh, uh, so I end with, I end with Repo Man. I know our time is running. The hours getting late in, but I, no, I, I, end, I got time for you. I, so I end the re, I end the book with Repo Man because with a little epilogue, but because the 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 issues of technology, street gangs, social breakdown, and the kind of every every person for him or herself and the eighty Reagan's kind of thing. I mean, between the lines, his thing, all of that coalesces in Repo Man, and so. The, that movie was in that, even though it's the outlier of the four of them, it, it kind of, they all kind of come together in a sense in that, in that movie. And so each chapter is the next year. Um, well, you know, the, the book, I'm, I'm curious to, to see how you feel now that you've kind of exercised your kind of adult feelings on these movies, kind of gone back to your childhood and teen years and some of your, your adult years to, kind of really consider how those attitudes, those points of view affected your watching of the movies, how the movies affected you going up and, and your, your worldview. 
the book ends on a very it's it's very dour um towards the end it very there's there's it well, is so, not and it's it's sort of a almost like a requiem for america or the american dream and i'm just wondering is it there's a reason is there an is there an optimism coming out of the book or are you still <laughs> kind of down on it because i well, i ended so, i'm like i wanted to give you a hug well so but well okay two things i one i wrote it I finished the draft that the, the the sort of second draft that went to the publisher in uh, December of 2020 is when I like finished the first draft. Now I revisited and like I did a lot of stuff throughout, like when it was started when they were going through the page proofs and stuff. But so the tone in part was December 2020, which was like really felt like well this is the end. Right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, something will survive, but it ain't going to be America. Right. But uh, that's part of it. I also uh, I do feel. I feel like the logical conclusion of. Like. Of the Reagan policy. Right. I think the logical conclusion of his of the bulk of his policies, not all of them. And uh, he's, let me say, I mean, in the childhood where I grew up, in my childhood, he was a hero in my house and I adored him and I thought he was like the best president. I mean, you know, I thought he was the and, best and president. And your, your, your family, I mean, not to get, not to spoil what's in the book, but they have an actual connection connections to, to him. Yes, my Bush, family you know, is, in fact, my, yeah. yeah, my family was longstanding. I'm not supposed to talk about it because they get, and they get testy, but my family has <laughs> longstanding connect ties to the Republican Party. In fact, we're like marveled in and, and knew, not me personally, but knew like, like Gerald Ford, uh, uh, Nixon, uh, Bush senior, uh, Reagan, they knew all of them. Uh, but, um, you know, he's now taken on a darker, sinister turn. And, and, and so anyway, the logical conclusion in some sense is a society where the institutions don't really look out for anybody, right? And that is the story within the story, the movie within the movie and each of these movies, right? If you had to boil them down, would be something like that, right? Even the outsiders, because no one gives a shit about the greasers, right? We haven't really talked about the outsiders, but no one cares about them. The movie cares, we're supposed to care. We're not supposed to give a shit about the, the socias, but ultimately, the no one cares about them at all, and so uh, I I think um, that I was working through a lot of that right in the end, and it was just a dark place when I was writing it. It's a dark time, but I also Ian I like I think the I think my writing persona is is more damaged then my like real self <laughs> comes out. I mean, I don't know because people say like, oh, you're like, you know, I just. Well, that's the thing. Like you seem okay. I am but, okay. But, but, reading, but reading the end of that book, I was like, again, I, I sincerely wanted to give you a hug. And I also want to ask you something because, you know, this may be a, a broader conversation we don't have time for, but you know, I'm curious because you make reference to the fact that you've got like a drawer and I imagine an actual sliding drawer full of sliding drawer. novels, unproduced screenplays you know things Most that you novels, have written yeah. right that you've written and you've i think you described some of them are pretty you know are very good yeah but you haven't submitted them to publish yet what if i might ask why 
Well, I used to, and I got really close a couple times. Uh, one time in particular, I got really close. I had uh, publishers, agents, uh, uh, but then everyone kind of passed, and I uh, I started writing nonfiction because I had been a film critic, and, and I was like, you know, I love movies. Let me let me try to share like a book and like have pieces of it unfold, kind of like a novel, right? And so I shifted to non. I still write fiction, but I shifted to nonfiction, and all of a sudden, people will actually read it. Like publishers are like, oh yeah, let's let me take a look at that. When you have a novel and you send it to a place, it's just silence, right? And so I didn't because everyone never wanted to, everyone wants to be a novelist. Like yeah, right. Well, they probably. I mean, so I never wanted to be the kind of guy. I made this. I made a deal with myself when I was like twenty. I started my first novel when I was nineteen. I, I made a deal with myself that I would not write one book for twenty five years. That I would not do that. It's like a deal I made with myself. I didn't want to be the guy that carried around some thousand page novel. And I, I was capable of that. Uh, I could have done that. So instead, I would write novels and I don't interrogate where they come from, right? I, I like, I have a historical novella I just finished. It's very weird for me. There's no violence. There's no, um, it's, there's, there's not much strangeness in it, right? It's relatively straightforward very weird for me i don't know where it came from i i know the emotions that fed into it but anyway uh, i uh, i got it it hurts it hurts i mean who gives a shit, right but it hurts to write stories okay so it hurts to spend time putting yourself into fictional worlds and and i developed skill i mean you know i passed the ten thousand hours mark a long time ago and then to have no one not only for it to like bomb at a publisher like getting published but have no one read it and so i was left with two roads self-publish or try nonfiction. so i tried nonfiction. i'm also dabble i'm considering self-publishing a few things for fun just for fun you know like you know but uh the, i do i still submit sometimes but i just don't hear anything and I'm nobody. I told you this before, right? I, 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 I don't know. I don't, I know people, but I don't know anyone in publishing. Right. <laughs> so, and I, I have two manuscripts that two different publishers being considered right now. And they're both, I think they're both really good. Uh, but you know, I don't have an agent and, and I just can't novels are, are weird. And there are a lot of novelists out there. And I'll tell you anyone listening who wants to, who writes novels, I'll tell you, you have to be lucky. You have to be on the zeitgeist a little bit and uh you do it really helps to know people and so those things you know it's hard for those things to line up uh, but yeah uh, and i probably would have been more successful if i kept rewriting and, and submitting if i had submitted one manuscript to 100 places maybe right but maybe not but anyone anyone listening who writes and has a full-time job you can either write or like try to find places to submit and it's the writing is what keeps you healthy in a way right so uh yeah if you're ever over you probably never will be if you ever over, i'll show you my are you can't look too closely but i'll show you my archive uh, uh yeah well, I just, you know, I, I read that and I just see that you've written, you know, the, the two books that we've discussed, that would just, 
and I haven't read these books, so I can't judge like, oh, this this would be great. People need to read this or eh, maybe it belongs in the drawer. But no, I I just I, I read that. I think there's so much potential there. Like the work is already done. True. All that's left is the finding a place for it, which I understand is probably a more daunting undertaking than getting the, the, the stories out themselves in some I'm, ways. I mean, I have a couple of them are like, like literary horror, sort of horror adjacent. Uh, they're not slasher novels or anything. So they're hard to, to describe, right? And agents and publishers don't really like hard to describe. They're, I mean, sure there's publishers out there that do, but like, you know, they want to know what you're doing right away, right? And then I have a few novels based on real people, but like I take a kind of weird spin on them. And that's also can be tricky. And so like, here's an example, and I know we gotta go, but I wrote a novel. I spent, I spent a, uh, about a year and a half writing a novel on Screaming Jay Hawkins. Now I changed his name. He's a soul blues R&B singer who had a crazy life, right? And a good story about his life is like, he would come, he was a voodoo guy at, on stage. And he would like come out of a, a, a coffin on stage, right? And one time he had a hammer and a sickle, right? He'd come out. So one time the drifters nailed the coffin shut for real. They would pretend to nail, but they nailed it for real. So he couldn't get out. So he's on stage and the music's playing and he can't get out, right? He's like trying to get out. And so he finally like breaks through the, the coffin and starts chasing the drifters around, trying to hit him for real with the hammer. And the audience thinks it's all part of the act, right? So anyway, I wrote a, a, a kind of a complicated story about him, uh, a novel. So I made up the plot, but he's like one of the main characters. And uh, I thought it was great, right? And uh, uh, that I, I submitted to one or two places or three places and didn't hear anything. And then, and then about a year later, some other fucker published a book on Screen J. Hawkins. So I was like, well, that novel's dead. Like, I, there's not gonna, there are not gonna be two novels coming out about like this, this about Screen J. Hawkins. It's not gonna happen, right? I'm not, Look. and I'm not, yeah. If they can have dueling volcano movies, you know. Yes, but again, I'm I'm not anybody, <laughs> right? I don't have a I don't have like a. I mean, I'm slowly building, I guess, a, rep, a small reputation. But so, you know. Anyway, Ben, I just I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try and force you to take those out of the drawer and like <laughs> send out a thousand copies. I'm just right. saying. Let me just say, everybody who was anybody started out as nobody. That's true. All right. Well, I, two things I want to leave you with. Okay. Anecdotes. One, my father uh, worked a few different careers in his life, but he all he the work he was most proud of was teaching basic skills to youth in and out of the correctional system. Hmm. Um, and that was and he was also uh, black, which is I don't know if, if you knew that about. Yeah, me. We've, you told me. Yeah, we talked about it. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I'm just, that's all by way of saying that those class, the couple of classroom scenes when we get, you know, in bad boys really resonated with me because mm. in a lot of ways, I thought I was watching my dad trying to oh, reach man. these kids because oh. he would, sometimes he would bring home essays that, you know, he would, he had received and he said, Hey, read this. You know, this is from a kid who's, you know, just got out of, you know, the system or, you know, did some time and all this stuff. And this is what he thinks about life and, and all that. And the scene where he passes out comic books because he's trying to teach, you know, 
broader concepts and, and right. like reading arcane things to these kids. And they're just not getting it's like, OK, read these comic books and write a report about what you think. You know, who are the main characters? And that was the first time that anybody passed because he finally found something that they could relate to or find, mm. you know, aspiration. in. so that was really touching. The second thing. I had the occasion to have dinner uh, a couple weeks ago with the actor now turned filmmaker Raphael Sabarge, who appeared in Risky Business as the uh, Tom Cruise's friend Glenn. He's the guy who brought the girl over to have yeah. sex in the upstairs bedroom. Yeah, it's a pretty um, good film too. Yeah. Oh, I love Risky Business. Yeah. It also turns 40 this year, along with Bad Boys. Okay. And we were talking over dinner because I asked him, I was like, I, I had a specific question about Risky Business. I preface it by saying, and it's not about Tom Cruise. And he said, oh, no big deal. So we ended up talking for like a half hour, like risky business stories. And he told me that they were filming risky business and bad boys in the Chicagoland area around the same time. And so Tom Cruise and Sean Penn would always be like running around together <laughs> the city. And before I watched bad boys, I was like, that just seems really like a strange pairing. But now I having watched that. Bad Boys and how Sean Penn was in that movie, I could just imagine Tom Cruise's happy-go-lucky, like with the sunglasses, like, I'm trying to be cool, along with Sean Penn's like brooding method stuff. Like, that could be a movie. You should write that. I would love to see that movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, the book was a very harrowing experience. It led me to reconsider The Outsiders discover and love bad boys and really want to see repo man and class of 1984 and to give you a gigantic hug so in that sense that's all it needed to do <laughs> the bad class is a is a must read so yeah thanks for writing it thanks for taking the time to talk to me about it and i'm going to give you some some closing words sir well uh thank you ian let me say uh, uh you're very kind and those are the story about your dad is that hits me uh that like hits me I know what it feels like when you're watching a film and a character like your dad or mom show up, pop up and, and it like all of a sudden the movie's a different thing. Right. But, um, I, I hope I, anyone who wants to read the book, I'll say it's, it's, it's a movie book, but not really a movie book. I mean, it both is and isn't. And, uh, it's, it's niche and eccentric, but, uh, honest anyway so it's supposed to be kind of fun too even though hearing you talk about it i'm like maybe it's maybe i'm too bitter on the page but well i also i also want to mention the caveat this is sort of a recurring theme uh, you do lean and this is i i've mentioned it before you do lean a, a little bit to the left just yeah just well <laughs> i mean i wasn't okay but yeah and, and i'll finish i, I know finish in terms this. of in the the, the pros i mean there is uh, Republicans do not come off uh, too kindly uh, in, in your Again, work. December 2022, right? Yes. So where I was writing it, uh, like I, like this isn't McCain and Romney that I'm writing about. This is, you know, but I'll say uh, my political evolution, because I was raised um, super ultra conservatively as a Southern Baptist in Florida uh, by, a, and then on the other side, there was like a long standing. Uh, tradition with connection to the Republican Party, uh, it wasn't easy to shift away from those things. I, I would imagine not. Yeah. In fact, there's just this. There's always a little part of me that's like, I can't believe I, I ended up this way. So in my family, there's always tension and disappointment. But I will say, um, 
ultimately, uh, I think if you look at Reagan's 80s, which is what I was trying to do in a way, right? It's pretty grim. And you can blame a lot of people uh, for a lot of things. There's a lot of political failure to be spread around. But um, I believe uh, that he, for his own reasons, uh, he gutted a lot of things that worked for people and helped people. And, and so, yeah, I'm like, a, I'm a progressive guy. I'm liberal. Most writers are. I mean, you have to scour the earth to find a good film critic. There's a handful, but you have to scour the earth to find a good film critic who's like a MAGA Republican. Okay. There's, there's some like Republican film critics. Don't miss, I mean, that are good. Yeah. Generally speaking there, it's not a, uh, it's not a, it's not terrain that's trod over very well by um, ultra conservative writers and thinkers and stuff. But uh, I, I hope that I'm fair and I'll, I'll, I guess I'm, I, I make myself, I think I present myself my own, shortcomings too right so it's not i'm not speaking down from the mountain i'm not proclaiming my beliefs like well i figured it all out because i'm a, a sage and so i you know it's all marbled together but anyway um ian thank you for having me i'm talking too much uh, <laughs> you're a great guy and i do i'm glad that you enjoyed the book it means a lot because i would hate i hate i would hate to waste people's time no, definitely not. Um, but yeah, thanks, Ben. I we will talk next year about Repo Man and hopefully For other sure. things because that that sounds awesome and, and weird and just my kind of thing. So thanks that. everybody. The bad class, buy it wherever fine books are sold. Uh, support Ben and Benjamin Beard. I want you to put out something in the next five years. Fiction. Fiction okay. that I can read and enjoy and evangelize. <laughs> All right, All right, man. Take it easy. <laughs> I'll catch you later. Yeah.